0: Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, suck at Seattle. It is a win Wednesday. A big congrats to George Kittle and Kyle Juszczyk for making it to the Pro Bowl. Defoe got robbed. Uh, And this week, we've got a smattering of guests. We've got Brandon Schultz from the Seahawkers Podcast here to recap the first win in five years against the Seattle Seahawks. I thought it'd be fun to bring a friend of the pod on and, well, gloat a little bit. We've got David Lombardi from The Athletic to talk a little bit more about the value of Nick Mullins and then round it out and preview the Bears. We've got John Buffone from the Buffon 55 podcast, part of the Bears Barroom Network. So we've got a lot of guests. Let's go ahead and kick it off. And let's start with Brandon Schultz from the Seahawkers podcast. You'll remember Brandon from the preseason preview of the Seattle Seahawks. He's been a friend of the pod for a long time. And so I thought I would have him back on to discuss the game a little bit. And so let's go ahead and jump right into that before we get to david lombardi to talk a bit more about nick mullins brandon schultz friend of the pod welcome back for a well i don't know if it's a humble pie episode i don't know what kind of episode it is exactly but i thought it would be fun to have you back on to really dig deep and recap about your feelings having lost the niners for the first time in five years
1: because man it felt good was it was it good for you I got to say, Oscar, it was a little bit strange that I heard from you after the game, but I didn't hear from you after the game <laughs> last time we played in Seattle. No, so not at all. I, not at you all. know, I just I had to expect that this was coming. And uh, I I went to the game with the expectation because I, I went down to Santa Clara for this one with the expectation that we'd be celebrating our playoff berth in a season that nobody expected the Seahawks to make a playoff game. And uh, I'm I'm having to postpone that uh, celebration now.
0: It was it was it was not a game I expected to win, surely, but it was definitely a good game nonetheless in that regard. I love being pleasantly surprised. And really I think part of what drove the Niners win was that Nick Mullins played probably the best game of his career. Um he had two hundred and seventy-five yards, one touchdown, no interceptions this go around. Stay away, Bobby Wagner. He hit eight different receivers. Uh and, and he's been dealing against the Seahawks all year. I mean, his six hundred and eighty-nine yards against the Seahawks are the most that Seattle has allowed to a quarterback in a single season since the franchise began and was birthed in 1976. Uh, so Mullins, I mean, who would have thought undrafted free agent would be the guy to
1: to fell the mighty Seahawks in the post-Jim Harbaugh era? And yet you guys are paying Handsome Jimmy uh, how much per year to to not play? And when you have McMullins... Worth Mullins every
0: penny. To, yeah. <laughs> Worth every penny. Uh, Mullins is trailed by four Hall of Famers on the list Uh, when you're looking at like total yards against Seattle. Ken Stabler, John Elway, Dan Fouts, and Kurt Warner. So really, I think the the net of this is that uh, Nick Mullins
1: is a Hall of Famer. I think that's how the transitive property works. Well, you weren't able to get the Colin Kaepernick trade done to Denver, so maybe maybe, uh, you call up... John Elway here in the off season and see if you can make it happen this year, because clearly you don't want to be having a, a hall of famer starting behind handsome Jimmy next year. Uh, you know, the Niners are really familiar with having two hall of
0: famers on the team at the same time. Right. I think, I think we'll manage now when it comes to Seattle, really it was the, or really when it comes to Mullins, I think the thing that set him apart this game as compared to the last game was his performance under pressure, right? In week 13, I think uh, Ken Norton dialed up quite a few more blitzes. They pressured him 35% of the time, 80, 18 out of 52 snaps. Uh, Norton sent blitzes 23% of the time. They sacked him three times. Two of those uh, were uh, on blitzes. Well, and I now
1: think I, it kind of it, it kind of shows just how differently teams can game plan with. I, I don't like having games, you know, game against the Niners, then a game in between and then another game. Because yeah. then, especially in the case of having the blowout, I'm sure the team looks at it and says, Well, we can just keep doing what we're doing. The we the blitzing worked last game, so let's go after him again. And and clearly Shanahan had a response for that because you know, Mullins was able to get rid of the ball a lot more quickly and and pick up the guy when he saw the blitz coming. So it uh, it it was a lot more effective and and really the defensive line wasn't getting a lot of pressure on its own earlier on in the game, it really wasn't until the fourth quarter where we started seeing guys like Jaron Reed and Frank Clark really kind of amp up the pressure uh, on the defensive line. Yeah, Jaron Reed, uh, I think that
0: for the Niners, there's always been a long history of someone really, really good on the interior just blowing up the, the line for the Cardinals. Uh, for a long time, they had Corey Peters against Daniel Kilgore, and now I think Jaron Reed might be that guy against uh, our new center, Weston Richburg, because he's had a couple really good games. I thought what was interesting about the pressure, though, was that even in the first game, Mullins had a pretty good line against the blitz. He was six of 10 for 62 yards and a touchdown specifically against the blitz. And I think that changed Norton's tactics in game two, because Norton did not blitz nearly as much in the second game. The Seattle Seahawks still managed to get pressure. Like you said, a lot of it coming late in the game, but Seattle backed off on the blitzing. They I just sent five
1: it or, wasn't working in the
0: first half. I, yeah, they sent nine or, they sent five or more rushers just 19% of the time. They, they did sack Mullins three times, but none of them were on blitzes. Yeah. And, and yet still on the blitz, Mullins was four for six for 56 yards. All four completions were first downs. So I, I think Mullins, you know, the thing that sets him apart from Beathard is his processing speed, his ability to diagnose blitzes pre-snap and get the ball out quickly, even if his arm isn't as strong as CJ Beathard's. And that's what got the Seahawks this game. And, and he carved him up as well as he could. And, and that turned into an, uh, an overtime
1: win. Well, at least it wasn't 400 plus yards like last game. Yeah, Yeah, it was 400 last game. A lot of that was indicative of the score in the last game. But uh, yeah, I, you know, we keep going back to the fact that Mullins, he's, he's shown some nice things in the past, uh, in in these games. And I think a little bit, you can, you can point to scheme because shoot through the first, uh, at least two quarters, every time he was thrown to a dude, he was wide open by about 10 yards. Wide open. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, I found it interesting that the, the big play
0: in this game was was really the thing that kind of tilted for, for both teams in the pregame kind of reek or in, in the preview before the week. I thought this game would come down to big plays. If the Niners could limit Russell Wilson and get a couple of big plays themselves, then I thought that it would tilt that way because Russell Wilson is nothing but a big play artist. He is going to run around, escape and then throw a bomb at Doug Baldwin. And, and keep the Seahawks in a game that they may not have any business being in. And he did exactly that in the fourth quarter. I mean, that, that 24-yard pass when they were down three with about eight minutes left to go, I thought to myself, here we go again. It's Russell Wilson. He's doing the damn thing. And, and it didn't really – but that was only one of three plays over 20 yards, three pass plays over 20 yards okay. all game, whereas the 49ers had seven passes of 20 or more yards. If game one was where Schottenheimer, I think, outcoached Robert Sala, I think this was the game where Shanahan
1: outcoached Ken Norton. I I would definitely agree with that. I'd also say that in this game, Russell Wilson was not seeing the field nearly as well as he had been in past games. And you go back to the Vikings, you know, he didn't even have 100 uh, passing yards in that game. And you, you point to the three big plays that happened in the game. Well, I count at least three plays that either Russell missed or he connected on and they came back due to penalties. There was the one in overtime down the sideline to J.D. McKissick uh, that came off the board to a holding call. There was, uh, in the fourth quarter, he went deep to David Moore when he had Doug Baldwin running wide open down the field, and yet he threw it up, contested to David Moore when they're both on the the same side of the field. And then earlier on in the game, I think it might have been the second quarter, when he was going toward the end zone, Doug Baldwin wide open against the safety in the end zone. And Russell just sailed it over his head when he he had it wide open. He didn't need to put that much air into the ball. And he would have connected with Doug for a touchdown. So those were some of the big plays that I, that I saw that, that Russell usually makes that come, just didn't happen for one reason or another. Yeah, he was pressured at about 37%
0: uh, on passing plays, which is... Uh, A little high for a quarterback that that's like some Tom Cable pressure rate. (laughs) Usually he's around, you know, this season he's been a little lower than that, but that 37 to 44% rate. I mean, that's, that's the Niners doing a little bit better. uh, I think this game than they did the last game. Um, But overall, I think the pressure really started to affect, uh, to affect Russell Wilson. And it affected some of the throws. He did miss some wide open players, but at the same time, you look at the, at the route combinations that Schottenheimer's throwing out there. And a lot of them were just two or three man routes. And it's really difficult for Russell Wilson, even as great as he is, to 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 really just say like, okay, I've got option one, I've got option two. What happens when both of those are gone? Oh, crap. There's DeForest Buckner.
1: Well, and that's really uh, a product of the fact of using the sixth offensive lineman a lot more with George Fant. And I think they're using six offensive linemen at a rate of right around 30 uh, percent, which is crazy high for the league and it it does limit the number of receivers but in those run packages and we've even started to, even in this game against the 49ers we saw George Ra- George fan run like a 30 yard route downfield and he he was pretty wide open and i would expect maybe they're going to they're lo- going to be looking for him downfield later on Talk to me a bit about that because that seems it, it seems
0: like okay you've got a lot of gimmicky things happening in the NFL and and I say gimmicky and air cool right sure. if they work and they're sustainable they're not really a gimmick it's just fun right it's fun to be experimental you've got uh, the the two quarterback system in New Orleans you've got the flirtation with the two quarterback system in uh, in Baltimore but this is the first time I've seen a team trot out a sixth offensive lineman that's like a hybrid offensive lineman. Uh, kind of receiver tight end, really, which is what they're using George Fant as. He's reporting as eligible a whole hell of a lot. And that happened a lot against the Niners as well. And sometimes it it worked, but a lot of times it didn't because Marcel Harris, who's the safety, is able to just get right around the block of Fant because he's not as athletic as Marcel Harris. And he was able able to blow up a couple of plays, including that uh, the screen in the fourth quarter when Seattle was driving and eventually had to settle for a field goal. So... How long has this been happening? What the hell
1: is the logic there? And and how do you feel about it, really? Well, as long as it's been happening, you go back to the the twenty four or 2013 NFC Championship game when Marshawn Lynch was still running behind the line. The touchdown that he scored to put the Seahawks ahead of the 49ers in that game, they had six offensive linemen in. So it's it's not necessarily a brand new thing. I think to the extent of the, the amount of plays that George Fant is in there is new. And the fact that he splitting Fant out is new
0: (laughs) because, and that part is right. (laughs) Jim Harbaugh
1: ran, you know, six, seven, eight, nine offensive linemen. Right. I mean,
0: at times the former Niner Seahawks games were basically rugby matches, right? Or it was like just a mash of big bodies in the middle of the field, but splitting Fant an offensive lineman out
1: as a split end or as a tight end, that's new. And there were times I think it was in the last game where they lined him up right on Sherman just for a run play, just for fun. And... They did. They tried to block him with Sherman, yeah. and Sherman was like, "I don't, I don't care." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is. It's fun to see some of that stuff. And Fant did play tight end in college. Uh, he didn't play a lot of it. He, he really didn't play a lot of football in college. So it, uh, you know, he's another one of those uh, basketball conversions to tight end and or to lineman. And Man, you know, you know how I feel about, about
0: your offensive coordinator, yeah. one Mr. Brian Schottenheimer. I'm not, I'm not too wild about him. Oh, no.
2: I, is, yeah. is, We're not is
0: either. This, is this something like, when, when you look at the state of the Seattle offense, uh-huh. I mean, this is not a Niners defense that is amazing. They've played better as of late, I think, because of some of the younger players that they've played, including Marcel Harris and Elijah Lee. But you've got one of, in my opinion, the three best quarterbacks in the NFL. And you look at the, the the pivotal series in the fourth quarter when the, the Seahawks did finally get to the midfield and, and they drove down. They, they get that 24-yard pass to Baldwin. There's eight minutes to go. You're down by three. I mean, this is where you put the ball in your quarterback's hands. And instead, what we see is a handoff to Mike Davis, a handoff to Mike Davis, which then gets brought back because of a holding called to Buckner, a screen to Mike Davis, which Marcel Harris makes a great play on because George Fant is out in space and that's a matchup I'll take any day. Uh, and then you get a third down sack where there were only two wide receivers really on the route. Uh, and there was another kind of dump off outlet in, in the flat. Like, how are you going to, as an offensive coordinator, take the ball out of the best, one of the three best quarterbacks in the NFL right now? I, I just, I don't understand it.
1: Mike Davis was having a pretty good day in this game. So don't be knocking Mike Davis. He had a you, lot you know, of, look, a lot of good I plays have a soft come spot the in my heart for Mike <laughs> Davis. He's got, you know, he's a Niner draft pick. Oh, yeah, we uh, were saying getting, this was going to be a Mike Davis revenge game.
0: Uh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I totally get it. I thought that they were probably trolling us by playing him as much, but it turns out that Sherman just beat up Chris Carson on a tackle uh, and he had to take some time out to rest. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but I mean that 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 and, and what's surprising, too, is that Schoenheimer actually called a pretty good game a couple weeks ago against Salah, And, and uh, you know, that I guess it was just luck because when you look at what he did this week, it was it just wasn't
1: there. Well, you know, it was it was a whole lot different. It was noticeably different from first half to second half. I thought the way they moved the ball in the first half, it was just they were missing on. And I, I go back to that one play where it was third and one and they roll Russell out. He has Chris Carson open to get the first down and he decides not to throw it to Carson. And then he I, I forget which 49ers player rushed at him. he ends up fun, fumbling the ball and then it's fourth and nine. And that series, I, that felt like one of the turning points of the game, because after that, it just they, the offense never really seemed to move the ball the way they did those first few drives.
0: Yeah, and I think that the I think Doug Baldwin coming back was good for the team. Uh, I'm surprised that he didn't have a monster game. I, I mean, he, I guess he did have a
1: monster I mean, he had game. the I mean, two, two touchdowns, touchdowns and, and yeah. Russell missed him on the one and then he missed him deep. I, he should have had 150 yards and, and three touchdowns.
0: Which wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I did advise a couple of my friends to start him in fantasy because that's, you know, I was expecting not great things from, from this game or the secondary. Excuse me. I'm having my celebratory beer and, the, you know, <laughs> carbonation. But but I think overall, I mean, if you were to kind of sum up this game, uh, you know, h- how would you sum it up as a Seahawks fan watching
1: your team lose for the first time in a very, very long time? Against it's been a while. I know. We, we've talked about that in a while. Five years. Yeah. Five well, years. You had penalties was the biggest issue. You know, 14 penalties for, I think it was a franchise record, almost 150 yards. Uh, I can't really point to one thing because it was penalties, it was special teams, and Janikowski missing the extra point. I, the There was wind. Uh, that's why, you know, you had the kick short and then brought back for the touchdown. So you had that swing of where you miss an extra point and then you give up a touchdown return. And uh, then you have uh, the field conditions were bad for both. But I point to that and just you know, it was injuring guys on both sides of the field. There, you know, people were falling down. I couldn't count how many times. Tedrick Thompson, uh, I, I said, just he can't home tackle. Home field advantage, my friend. Yes, yeah, just well, a home field advantage. Yeah, and why can't at your home field in Northern California grow grass? Like it's it's sixty degrees. It's not that hard. It's <laughs> the weather's nice all year round, like, and you can't grow
0: grass. Hey man, candlesticks field was like below sea level and so the water would kind of come up into that soil and end up creating a mud pot. So you've had so, all these you know, years
1: of experience and you still haven't figured is, it out.
0: No, I you know, I don't think that I want to figure it out. If it <laughs> results in Seahawks players just kind of falling down and slipping and needing them to figure out what cleats to put in, you yeah. know, I want that.
1: Well I want that home field advantage. Witherspoon you guys did the go noise. down. I I might even blame that a little bit on the Witherspoon injury, so you You might have the noise, you have the sound uh,
0: in in the puget area, the puget sound of the stadium and the clink and all those things we 've got sod <laughs> uh, I, uh, okay
1: I, congratulations
0: <laughs> how do you How do you feel about the penalties because that's uh man there's a lot of conspiracies floating around Seahawks Twitter and in the Seahawks reddit about
1: the the Niners and and the penalties and how that you know they were phantom penalties and this that and the other there's three that I complain about but there's if I'm complaining about three out of 14 I I I can't complain I mean that's within the standard deviation of bad calls for a standard NFL I mean the Shaquille Griffin call
0: was BS like no no that was fine (laughs) no come on
1: (laughs) he didn't even touch the dude
0: (laughs) Oh uh, Yeah, he did. He, so so he, if you look at the penalty, and actually, so Terry McCauley actually had a good back and forth with, I think, Ben Baldwin on Twitter, where he looks at the tape and, and what Terry Ma- McCauley basically comes to, he's a former ref, I think, for, yeah. for the NFL. Basically, he comes to the conclusion that it probably wasn't pass interference, but it, it was, was holding. Very so he touched holding. early on. And yeah, and so it would have been a first down. That's exactly right. So he basically affected his route and, and hooked him. And, and I think it was the hook that ended up getting the, the P.I., but he does affect the route as Pettis tries to get out of the break, okay. uh, which would have been holding. So, called it wrong. you know, six of one, and one half dozen of the other, it still extends the drive. Sure. Um, but, you know, I've always said, and I've said it many a time on this podcast, if if you're complaining about the refs, it's still your fault because you should never let it be close enough for the refs to matter. Oh, yeah.
1: We say that all the time. Yeah. And I, I just don't like complaining about penalties. And, you know, the other two were holding calls and it just... It, the weirdest one to me was the one in overtime where I don't even think I heard the ref announce the holding call over the loudspeaker all of a sudden the Seahawks were backing up after everybody was you know all the Seahawks fans in our area were celebrating this big first down and and then they're marching them back toward the end zone I had no idea what happened. Yeah. No replays a... or anything. It was just oh oh I guess I guess we're playing this down over again and and it's a lot farther. They were
0: just resigned to their fate, my friend, resigned <laughs> to the fate. Uh, well, hey, man, it, it's always good to have you on. We've had it. I think this is now the third time that we've chatted this season. Uh, you know, we've had I was on your show yep. and then you came on for the season preview. Uh, and now this is this is three times, man. Uh, I'm glad to have you back on. And uh, I'm glad that at least this season we, we are equals, e- even if not in playoff but at least in in the, the win and loss column
1: in the head to head, we'll, we are well see now maybe once we make the playoffs and we face the Rams, maybe we can join in together and and just, um, you know, preview that game together of how we want the Rams to lose. Uh, yeah, the enemy of my enemy may be my
0: friend, but I, I think I'll just probably put on like a Kansas City Chiefs jersey okay. or something and just <laughs> <laughs> um, what. So what's your path to the playoffs now? Because it, it's it's not
1: guaranteed, but it's likely, right? Well, they have to beat the, the only, if they beat the Cardinals in week 17, they're in. Okay. That's all that has to happen. Now there there's weird scenarios that could happen. Like for instance, they could beat the chiefs and then lose to the Cardinals and then Washington could win both their final two games. And they would have the, and if I think Minnesota wins both their games, then the Seahawks and and skins would finish tied and, and the skins would have the tiebreaker by virtue of uh, their division records or something crazy. So, um, just, yeah, they just that, have to beat the Cardinals. That that
0: scenario makes me want to drink more. Um, <laughs> but it, it sounds like week 17, we will be Cardinals fans uh, for two reasons. One, because if the Cardinals win, uh, that means you're probably a not in the playoffs. But two, we get a higher draft pick. Uh, because
1: we'll we'll be tied with the Cardinals. Yeah, why are you per- guys so excited about this win over <laughs> Seattle? You're obviously you you lost out on any chance of getting what Nick Bosa now. So I don't care. Congratulations! I, of, look, I I am a
0: chief at I'm am, I'm am the best at rationalizing my irrational feelings about things. And, and, yes, a number one draft pick would be great. It increases the likelihood that maybe you can get your pick of top talent, but it doesn't guarantee a goddamn thing. No. You know what is guaranteed? The fact that we beat you for the first time after five years. It must and that feel good. feels good. It must. It feels good. <laughs> and we did it with an undrafted free agent, with an undrafted free agent at running back, and another, you know, Jeff Wilson, who's another undrafted free agent running back. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where it, it just people... The, the, the bones are there, you know, when you when you find a house and you're like, look, it might be a fixer upper and and it doesn't look great. And it's got popcorn ceilings or whatever. But, man, it's in a good area and the bones are there. And I know that if I just put in some work, it's going to be great. That's that's the house that Kyle Shanahan's building right now.
1: And it's fun to be on that ride. I feel like you said something similar about this team going into the season. And now you have four wins. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> but we have four wins with an undrafted free agent
0: quarterback, because remember, I told you in the preview, I said, best case scenario best case yeah. the team gets to eight wins right and, and i think now they're at four and, and if they sneak one win maybe because the you know the the rams rest their starters in week 17 which they may not do but let's say they do you're at five wins that's not too far off even
1: losing your franchise quarterback so actually be you know, a pretty I, solid division record for you guys you're able to beat the cardinals twice and then have one each over here uh, your- no we lost to the cardinals twice did? That's, that's oh that's the problem Oh, that that's, was that's the, the that... problem
0: right there. We lost <laughs> the worst team in football. twice. <laughs> that's, oh,
1: you had the tiebreaker over the Cardinals for the worst pick. I see. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because of the strength of schedule. So, you know, well, who you, know, you I... win some, you lose some. How did but you guys get Seattle... to four wins? Oh, man, it's it's a long story. Denver. It's... See, I was thinking Denver, Seattle and the two Cardinals games. I, I guess I haven't been following closely enough. <laughs> no,
0: definitely not. The Raiders, remember, were on our schedule.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Wow. Yep, you got it. Two losses to the Cardinals. Uh, and then Detroit, the old Detroit lions. That's, that was the other one. Wow.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: but Brandon, thanks for coming on to break the, uh, the game down. I super appreciate it. And, uh, if you ever want to hear some Seahawks stuff, when the Niners are going to play them, uh, definitely tune into the Seahawks podcast, uh, cause they do great work and, and it's always a blast having them on. So Brandon, thanks again for coming on and, and always good to have you. A uh, uh, typical friend of the pod. Great conversation.
1: Absolutely. Oscar. Always look forward to it. And, uh, Until next time, go Hawks. Until next time, go Niners,
0: God damn it. And Boomer Sooner. (laughs) Oh, God, I forgot you're a Sooner. That makes it even worse. (laughs) Thanks once again to Brendan for coming on to recap the Seattle Seahawks game. He's always a good sport. Now let's talk a little bit about the value of Nick Mullins. I had some really interesting discussions today about how Nick Mullins is performing, how awesome Kyle Shanahan is and how George Kittle is helping all of this go. So we're going to talk a little bit about an article that David Lombardi wrote in The Athletic. We're going to talk a little bit about some advanced statistics and what it all means for the 49ers moving forward. Now, one thing to note is that there is some beeping and some audio issues with this interview with David. He was on a cell phone, and so you're you're going to hear some of that background noise. But hopefully all the noise is worth it in the end. And now without further ado, here's our next interview with David Lombardi. And to dig in a little bit more on the value of Nick Mullins, we've got David Lombardi, writer at The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter, at Lombardi himself. David, how you doing? Welcome to the Better Rivals podcast.
3: Uh, I'm doing great. Just uh, stepped out of the 49ers locker room, actually. Uh, it was, uh, it, it's it's interesting this year because there's so many parallels. This December to, to last season, and I don't think we saw any of these parallels coming uh, a few weeks ago, but but now we have it. We have the, game winning kick to walk it off. in week 15 last year was the Titans and, and, and this year, obviously it was the Seahawks. And now we have the number one defense coming into Levi's stadium in week 16, followed by a game at the Rams in week 17. So I think that's kind of cool. There's a little bit of buzz going on and, and that makes my job a little bit easier because it's a lot easier to cover something that has buzz around it than something that's dead.
0: Let's talk a bit about that buzz because the the prevailing sentiment now is, of course, looking at Nick Mullins as something more than just an undrafted free agent who listens or, or recites play calls and is on his couch with you know kind of crowd noise in his ears. Now people are looking at him like maybe a legit quarterback, and you wrote a little bit about that today in the Athletic, and, and you talked a little bit about George Kittle, and and some of it included something from a stack called PACR that I kind of wanted to dig into. So I, I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about PACR, what you wrote in the article, and and how that kind of pertains to to Nick Mullins and his performance.
3: Well, it was an interesting X Y axis that I really didn't even understand what was going on when I first saw it. But it was you were not interesting alone, <laughs> because, yeah, because you know every quarterback has a dot on on this X Y axis, so it's a it's just a standard graph, and and for some reason there were two pretty big outliers and one massive outlier on the graph on the Y axis. And that was Nick Mullins. His dot was way above every other quarterbacks and on the X axis, it was pretty far along uh, that way to the right. And then the, the other outlier, at least on the Y axis or, you know, top three kind of guy was CJ Bethard. So to explain the chart, you have to see it. So it, it may be a little bit confusing to explain it, but the, the P ff score of each quarterback was on the along the x-axis so the further to the right that you were into further positive territory on the x-axis that meant that the pff had liked the the performance of those quarterbacks and then the y-axis was 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 raw
0: pff grade and they always do everything on a on a plus and minus and i think it's up to two uh so you exactly the the kind of axis you're going to see there on the x
3: Yeah, so that's where the dots were on on the X, and then the Y was this P A C R, which I'm not even sure what it stands for, but it's um, passing
0: air conversion ratio. Uh, Passing
3: air conversion ratio. There you go. Developed by one Mister
0: Josh Hermsmeyer.
3: Yep. So essentially, just to to keep it simple, that's a a a ratio, right, between Yards, passing yards that are completed through the air and passing yards that are uh, attained through yards after the catch. And the more uh, yards after a catch there are as part of a quarterback stats, the higher he'll see his dot be on the Y-axis. And uh, for both Nick Mullins and C.J. Beathard, they were two of the top three quarterbacks. And Nick Mullins was the number one in the NFL by a lot. As far as the, the dot and PACR, he was way up there. And I think that just goes to show you that Kyle Shanahan is doing an excellent job in scheming space. And if you look at George Kittle's numbers, he's breaking all these records for tight ends and he's he's nearly leading the league. He's only like 11 yards off in yards after the catch. Um, when you even include running backs and wide receivers, I think it just goes to show you that Kittle is a very good and very fast in the open field and B Kyle Shanahan knows how to use Kittle and his other receivers, uh, to set up Nick Mullins and, and his other quarterbacks for success.
0: Yeah. So because PACR is really good at, at taking the average depth of target into account, basically it's like, okay, the higher the PACR, then the more basically yards after the catch a quarterbacks yardage is made up by. And what we're seeing with Mullins is that he's able to, yes, complete passes to open receivers, but then those receivers are able to convert those passes and get more yards after the catch. And you had some great stats in your article about George Kittle. Uh, He's had 34.2% of the 49ers receiving yards this year, which is the third highest percentage in league history. But his yards after the catch numbers are absurd. He's got 740 yards after the catch. And when you stack him up just against other wide receivers and tight ends, he is lapping them. Juju Smith Schuster has 570, Travis Kelsey has 527, uh, and Tyreek Hill has 453. So, this really, what, what basically the number shows is that Nick Mullins is doing well, yes, but he is absolutely being lifted by both his supporting cast, specifically George Kittle, and Kyle Shanahan's scheme, who's throwing, who's getting people open and allowing the wide receivers to take advantage.
3: Yeah, and it's well like you said, it's a combination of things. The the scheme has to be there, right? You have to give a guy necessary space to be able to to take a pass and and run with it. But then the quarterback also has to put the pass in the right spot and that's usually kind of a in the NFL at least, that's a shoebox, you know, small spot. You can't just you know, throw it in the general vicinity of a receiver, force him to lunge backwards, and, and you know, even if he makes the catch, he doesn't get any yards out of the catch. That, that's that's worthless in that regard. So the quarterback has to be accurate with his delivery to hit a guy in stride. And then, obviously, the, the third component is is the player. And in Kittle, the 49ers have a guy that obviously has the athletic tools to do it, but the player has to be able to turn it up a notch in the open field and get away from NFL defenders, which is. Uh, much easier said than done in a a lot of situations so uh, I think in the case of Kittle's yards after the catch stats that is a complete testament to his football speed and you know I talked to Vernon Davis for the article who's you know by consensus the the most athletic tight end of all time at least if you go off of the combine testing he ran that 43840 Kittle ran only a 452 in the combine last year but I think if you watch tape of those two guys side-by-side and their primes, and I don't even think Kittle's in his prime yet, but Davis in his prime versus Kittle now on tape, I I would venture to say that Kittle looks faster on the field. And I think that highlights the difference between 40 speed and adrenaline speed with pads on. And, And I also think that Kittle has looser hips than Vernon Davis ever did. So he's able to move around and, Kind of reposition his body in a way that avoids hits and, and gets through contact and in a way that we never saw Davis do. And they, I'm not trying to knock Davis, he was still a very productive tight end, very explosive tight end. But I think that Kittle's athleticism, at least for football, for football purposes, tackle football purposes, it ha- has been a step above.
0: Well, I think you, when you talk about athleticism and we're, and we're parsing between elite athletes here, because I agree with you, both are elite athletes. I think really what George Kittle has is the explosion. When you look at his broad jump numbers from the combine, and it's one of the reasons that he was one of the, he was actually the highest spark athlete for tight ends in his class. And I'm sure one of the reasons why the Niners were drawn to him right away. But I think it's that explosion and that ability to get into his his run and get to top speed quickly is faster and, and better than Vernon Davis because Vernon Davis was fantastic at straight line speed, which is why he was always so deadly on those seam routes and those smash concept routes. But once he got a full head of steam, it was difficult to get him. But I think George Kittle gets to top speed a little faster than Vernon Davis did, even though, you know, they they probably both are equally as fast when they're running straight line.
3: Exactly. And yeah, explosion in football, it's an explosion sport, right? Football is the the ultimate explosion sport. A sport like basketball is going to uh, play uninterrupted until a whistle happens. A a sport like... uh, hockey is going to be even more uninterrupted but football is what five seconds at most of of organized chaos and then they huddle up and they do it again so it's a five second explosion you stop five second explosion you stop so that that ability to get off the line that ability to take advantage of that very small window of time and create separation within that small window of time is huge and and, and I think that the, the broad jump, like you mentioned, which Kittle set a record in at the combine before it was broken right after he did it by two guys. But uh, I, I think that's a great indicator. So something like the three cone drill for wide receivers, you know, that's going to measure that short area, short area quickness. And Kyle Shanahan loves that um, you, Trent Taylor, Kendrick Bourne, you know, two of his early wide receiver additions, uh, as soon as he took over, both finished in the top five of the combine and the three cone drill. And and Shanahan realizes that because football is an explosion sport, um, because there are limited windows of time to, to get open and get things done, uh, often you are going to have to see who's the better man, who's the more effective, explosive man in close quarters. And I think the broad jump and the the three-cone drill are two measurements indicative of that
0: now one of your fellow writers at the athletic matt barrows has written a little bit about what he thinks is the 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 kind of the way that shanahan speaks about cj bethard versus uh, mullins and he thinks that cj bethard is really a shanahan favorite and that would make sense i mean he drafted him in the third round uh, and he thinks that mullins is a favorite of the quarterbacks coach rich and i'm gonna mess up his name and it's like scangarello scangarello there yes, you go scangarello Uh, And and so he thinks that that's kind of the way the favorites are playing out in in the locker room. Not that, of course, Shanahan's going to do anything to to besmirch Mullins. He's obviously playing and starting. But do you sense that that's the case? Um, And and do you sense that the competition is actually even? Or do you think that it's a bit more lip service for C.J. Beathard that we're hearing from from Shanahan?
3: Oh, no, uh, you have to judge every coach by his actions and, and, and not his words. I mean, Kyle Shanahan gave the job to Nick Mullins and Nick Mullins is keeping the job until he starts playing yo-yo with him and, and, and putting Nick uh, CJ Beathard back in for a series or two. You can't take any of this. Oh, the competition is even seriously. And uh, along those lines, Kyle Shanahan should not be expected to, nor should, um, you know, he even think of diminishing CJ Beathard's value. I mean, Kyle Shanahan is here to run an NFL franchise from the football operation standpoint, he's not here to make, you know, true statements to the media and I'm a member of the media. So I, <laughs> I, 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 I do Kyle should, yeah, it, it's, it's my job to be critical um, and critically think about these statements that are coming from Kyle Shanahan's mouth and to, you know, put them into context and figure out, uh, you know, what exactly he means, but it's also my job to, simultaneously recognize that Kyle Shanahan is going to do certain things for a competitive advantage. And everything he does is within the framework of of that competitive advantage. And why would you go out and just publicly say that one guy is clearly better than the other when a trade is possible at some point for one of these two quarterbacks, when you know, so many different personnel maneuverings are possible. Uh, with, with, with other teams, it, it just doesn't make any sense to uh, go out on a limb and, and start uh, giving your opinion on, on different value of different players. And, and if it's just to, to appease the media or some fans on Twitter that want to hear that uh, Nick Mullins is better, well, I think that they, they should be satisfied by just looking at what's actually happening, actions instead of the words. And Nick Mullins is clearly winning that battle right now.
0: It, what's your gut tell you about what's going to happen uh, at the end of all this? Do you think that one of them gets traded, or do you think that uh, one of them just gets cut, cut, cut out? Right. What do you think is, is the end game for the two quarterbacks, just based on what you know now and kind of some gut feel?
3: Well, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be coming off an ACL tear next year. Um, I think that Kyle Shanahan may stray away from his usual two quarterback, um, situation that we've seen to start both 2017 and 2018 next year really is a big trial year also for jimmy garoppolo given the way that the contract is structured they can get out of that deal with very minimal financial damage after 2019 which is one reason why that deal was so universally lauded that that they're not really you know committing that much to jimmy garoppolo they had plenty of cap room to pay him here in the first two years but they're gonna have to figure out how durable he is they're gonna have to figure out Um, you know, how good he is over a larger sample size. And because of that, I think they want to keep their options open at quarterback until they're absolutely sure of what's going on.
0: So last question for you, and, and I ask you this just because I know that you're closer to the locker room, and so I'm curious to get what your read on this is. But there, there's a debate about this kind of learning how to win thing versus, you know, kind of getting draft position. And while I've been very vocal on the show about, you know, kind of wanting to elegantly tank where you want the team to cover the spread and get really, really close to winning, but still advance in, in the draft position order. I don't think the team is in by any way, shape or form intentionally tanking or should. Be. These are competitors. They get paid a lot of money to do some really, really awesome things. But do you, do you think there's something to this idea that teams need to learn how to win and, and that this process I guess winning four games, or maybe even five, if they were able to sneak another one in there over the last two weeks, but that's somehow going to be better and/or propel them and, and kind of teach them how to close out close games.
1: You know, maybe
3: not on a team wide level, because you're going to see enough turnover over the course of you know the off season to really dispel you know some of that chemistry stuff and you know learning how to win at the end of the game. But on the individual level, and the individual level ends up accumulating into the team wide level. I do think there's something to be said about having success, especially for young players that can build it in the next year. And the great examples of the 49ers have decided to embark on a youth movement here in December. They're playing guys like Marcel Harris right now. They were forced to play Tarverius Moore at cornerback in this uh, previous game. Uh, They're playing guys like DJ Jones now on the defensive line instead of a veteran like uh, Earl Mitchell. And I I think it's undeniable that, Guys like that have success, develop some confidence on just an individual level here in this December, that's something that can carry over and be very valuable to the football team next year. And guess what? A, a byproduct of guys having individual success like Tarvarius Moore, like Marcel Harris, one of the byproducts is very possibly going to be a win or two. If those guys are as good as you thought they were when you invested a in draft pick in them, You put them in the game in December and you tell them to develop and and and, and enjoy their time have fun play as hard as they can and they actually do that well then the natural byproduct that's pretty unavoidable is that they may win and they may hurt your draft order a little bit and I think that's just something you have to deal with because the flip side of that is not playing your younger guys. And then they're essentially rookies when you enter the 2018 season or the 2019 season. And that's a true waste of year. You know, you, you, you could either slip a couple of draft picks. There's a lot of, and I've been pretty vocal about it on Twitter. I think that there's more than one good player coming up in this draft. Um, or, and you, you can get more out of the draft picks that you already made for the, these young players, or you could see no development this year in game time situations and, and hold on to a couple uh, draft spots. And, and I think the choice is, is pretty clear. And I think the 49ers have followed uh, the choice of uh, trying to win some games here.
0: Yeah. I, I love the fact that the team is actually employing a youth movement. And, and I wonder if it's not a, a chicken or egg argument. Cause I think better, more talented teams win they, they don't magically learn how to win. They probably just are, are more talented. And so I think if you do have players, I think Marcel Harris has played well. I think Tavares more played okay in in his in his snaps when in his first meaningful game action and if those players like you said are actually good then they'll win i don't know that they necessarily learn that per se i think that they're probably just better at those positions like dj jones should have been starting over earl mitchell probably for almost the entire season at this point Um, and so I think, I wonder if it's not that they're learning how to win necessarily, but they're probably maybe just a little bit better or gelled together better or something. Um, and I think the coaches are calling the games a little bit differently too, especially on defense. You're seeing a bit more man coverage. Um, and so I think that goes into it. So I think it's, it's definitely an interesting discussion. And I agree with you entirely that the, while I would have loved to have had the first pick just because it gives the team more options, there is nothing to say that they're not going to knock the, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh pick or wherever they end up out of the park uh, and end up with a phenomenal player or trade down and get more assets and end up with a bevy of, of assets. So um, it, it's just fun to see. I think the the team actually, they're very self-aware and they know that they have a youth movement, know that they know they're out of it, and it's great to see them actually do that as opposed to other regimes that seem to just kind of stay the course because they were afraid to maybe lose their job.
2: Yeah,
3: exactly. And, and I think that the whole six-year contract and, and the fact that a couple of regimes before this one have flamed out and haven't gotten a chance and and everything went so poorly that the ownership had to sit back and say, okay, we're going to blow this up. And we're actually going to give the next guy's chance this time. I think, I think that that's at play here. And I think that, you know, in, in a weird roundabout way, Kyle Shanahan and, John Lynch can be grateful that the 49ers were so bad <laughs> after Jim Harbaugh left there for a couple of years through two coaches. No, I'm serious because they, no, they, they I, I, a, no, I
0: I know I agree they, with you.
3: The the Jed York of 2014-2015 had a much shorter leash and and he was looking for band-aid solutions as far as leadership went with the team and I think it took it took those failures for him to realize, "Wait, th- there is no band-aid that could fix this. We're, you know, bleeding out of uh, 55 different cuts at this point we need to just shut this down, fix it uh, however long it may take and and um, do it the right way uh, and, and I know it's a cliche do it the right way but but they needed a um they needed the, the long-term look at this because band-aids weren't going to work anymore. they at the very best case might have gotten the 49ers up to, to eight and eight but uh, Richard Sherman said it last week. If you're not winning a title, then uh, how good was your season uh, anyway in this league? And, and, and I think especially for a team and a franchise like the 49ers, that's won five Super Bowls. That's spot on, you know, eight and eight, nine and seven wild card exit. That, that, that gets old really quick. This franchise wants to go back to where it was where, when Jim Harbaugh was here and that was competing for Super Bowls every year.
0: Well, David, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, you know, I've got to say that your your coverage in The Athletic is absolutely a must read. Uh, I really thought you did such a great job with the Ruben Foster stuff. Uh, and, and I look forward to whenever you post some stuff in The Athletic. So thanks for all of your hard work. Thanks again for coming on. You are now officially a friend of the pod. I will reference you as such on Twitter. Uh, and hopefully we can do this again sometime.
3: Awesome, man. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your uh, Twitter, too. Glad that I was able to find you on there. Some useful stuff. So thanks again.
0: That was David Lombardi from The Athletic, and now we move on to the Bears preview, and this week we're going to do a little something different. We're actually going to welcome on John Buffone from Buffone 55 Podcast, part of the Bears Barroom Network. John, uh, I actually just came off of a segment on your podcast, and uh, you're returning the favor, so
2: how's it going? Oh, real well. I'm glad to be on. I'm talking a little uh, Bears Niners. Uh, Interesting dynamic with these two teams, so I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, so I didn't know. I just learned
0: that your uncle was on the Bears. And and so that's kind of how you got roped into this whole dang thing.
2: Yeah, exactly. He was a captain. He was a defensive captain from '72 to '79. Outside linebacker played for the Bears for 15 years, uh, and then did all the Bears postgame shows for 670 to Score out in Chicago. He kind of took me under his wing. He showed me, uh, how, you know, how to conduct myself in broadcasting. He's the reason I got into it. He's the reason I stayed in. I stayed in it when I was only making about a hundred bucks a week <laughs> I was doing a radio show in Western Pennsylvania. So uh, I owe a lot to him, and that's why uh, the podcast is basically a big tribute to him. That's why it's the phone 555 55 number he wore for the Bears' entire career.
0: Well, we are both coming off of highs this week. Y'all have won the division, beat the rival Packers to win the NFC North, and of course, the Niners just beat their rival for, well, nothing more than bragging rights at this point, uh, because it was a good one, nonetheless. First time that the 49ers have beat the Seahawks In five whole years. But now we are going to go up against the Chicago Bears team that poses a much more difficult task. And oftentimes we talk on this podcast how, of course, the quarterback is the most important position in football. And oftentimes whomever has the best quarterback in general, or perhaps just on that day, wins. And if you think about the game last year, Mitchell Trubisky threw for a whopping 102 yards. uh, And Jimmy Garoppolo threw for decidedly more than that. And the 49ers ended up winning 15 to 14 in the Robbie Gold revenge game. This game, I fear, is probably going to shape up a little different, but it still could come down to the quarterbacks. You've got undrafted free agent Nick Mullins, who is coming off of the best game of his career, going up against second overall pick Mitchell Trubisky. So I guess the first question is, from a Bears fan, objectively, is Mitchell Trubisky good? Because I think it's going to matter against the 49ers.
2: Listen, I've taken a very practical approach when it comes to Mitchell Trubisky. I, I there there are Bears fans, Bears analysts who who will defend him to the death, and I and I understand that, and they they have good points. And then there's there's people who hate Mitchell Trubisky for for reasons unknown. I, I don't know, I don't get where the the vitriol comes against Mitchell Trubisky, and he's not garbage, he's not trash. Listen, I I said that this guy could be a late budding quarterback. I, I compare it a lot to Alex Smith, where in the first couple years of his career, he was he was labeled a bust. He was not. Good. He was getting different coordinators a lot. He was struggling in San Francisco. And all of a sudden he kind of found himself. And he turned himself into a pretty damn good uh professional. I mean, he 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 he's had some really good years, and you know, he found himself, and now uh he, he you can't say he's a bust anymore. So I'm not saying that Alex Smith is the ceiling for Mitchell Trubisky. I think he can be better than that, but I also think that I see a guy who didn't play who didn't start a lot in college. I see a guy that in his rookie season had Dow Loggins and John Fox giving him an offense that basically Basically, was written in crayon, and then now he has to come in and have have an offense with Matt Nagy, who is the complete opposite of that. There's so many bells, whistles, and you know, checks and switches and things like that that it, it could be overwhelming. So it's a credit to Trubisky to to be able to kind of bring that all in and go from one extreme to the other and play pretty well I mean this is a guy that's play, playing well he is good and I think that he is going to continuously get better they finally put weapons around the kid that he can play better with Allen Robinson Tariq Cohen Taylor Gabriel Trey Burton and Adam Shaheen at the tight end position uh you got Jordan Howard the trusty uh you know the snow plow in the backfield he's there when times get rough so I I, I don't I obviously Matt Nagy has had a big impact on Mitchell Trubisky and I'm not saying that Mitchell Trubisky is going to be an all-time great quarterback but what what I will say is, he could be the perfect quarterback for the Chicago Bears for what they're trying to accomplish.
0: Well, when you look at the the kind of breakdown on Pro Football Focus for quarterbacks that have at least 122 snaps, Trubisky's passing grade ranks him 25th out of 39. And, and a lot of that has to do with his performance under pressure. When Mitchell Trubisky gets pressured, much like other quarterbacks, his play dips, but it dips significantly when it comes to Mitchell Trubisky. And when you're starting at a little bit above average, when you're in a clean pocket, the drop under pressure is pretty significant. So that's, that's actually pretty good news for the 49ers, because if they can get pressure, then they can try to make Mitchell Trubisky non-functional. So how is the offensive line performing in Chicago And is it something that you're concerned about, even though the 49ers don't have, you know, kind of the the all pro defensive end that's going to rush the quarterback, but they still have a pretty formidable pass rusher in DeForest Buckner.
2: You know, with Kyle Long out, it's a it, uh, that was a big hit. He was not just you know probably the best lineman on the on on that offensive line, but they also uh, lost their vocal leader there, a captain on the team. But you know they bring in Daniels, the rookie, who's been playing pretty admirable. And listen, w- what we saw with Trubisky when he's under pressure before was he'd have his head down, he'd spin around a few times, sometimes spin in the wrong direction. I I pulled my hair out a few times early in the season when I saw him running, but his head was straight down in the ground and he was spinning the wrong direction into defenders, losing twelve yards whenever they're in field goal range and then taking them out of field goal range but what you're starting to see now is whenever things kind of do break down he is improvising better if that if if i can if i can say that he's he's, he's. yeah
0: that's a skill playing performing out of structure is a skill right there are quarterbacks that do it very well i think mahomes is fantastic outside of structure i think even jimmy garoppolo last year was great out of structure that that's a skill you can be good out of structure
2: Absolutely, and I think that he's actually getting better at that. He he's keeping his head up now. He's he made, he made a great play last week where he evaded pressure. He rolled out, and instead of you know just taking off and running, he found Adam Shaheen for a big throw down the sideline, which was a big was a big first down play. So, like I said before, this guy he may not be. I, I don't like when people uh, say that if a quarterback's not Patrick Mahomes in his second year, he's a bust or he's he's no good. This is a guy that I think could be a slow progression, but it could be worth it in the long run because the Bears they have been yearning. For some stability at quarterback so much that they gave Jay Cutler a seven-year contract so much that they go out and they try to get these guys to plug in and be their guy and it just hasn't happened they haven't had a good quarterback play since Sid Luckman basically so I mean you everyone talks about the Browns you know list of quarterbacks look at the Bears you want to talk about guys that are a revolving door Cordell Stewart Jonathan Quinn Rex Grossman uh, Kyle Orton I could go on for days Craig Krenzel you name it they started for the Bears at some point jo- uh, Jason Campbell So I think a big a big presence for this team or a big thing is this team is just having their guy and they have their guy at coach. They think they have their guy at quarterback and they're going to ride or die with this guy because they need consistency. And so far, he's he's not sinking. And and there have been times where it's been bad, but there's also been times where he's also lifted this team uh, to, to win a couple games.
0: Is Craig Krenzel a real name, or did you just make that shit up?
2: Hey, Craig Krenzel started for Ohio State in the national championship game against Ken Dorsey in Miami. <laughs> so there, I believe I, I believe that Craig Krenzel started against the 49ers when Ken oh Dorsey was God. starting there.
0: Oh, Ken Dorsey! Look, any Forty Nine er fan has basically omitted that from his or her memory. That is, that is just the dark times. That is the the decade of darkness. We don't speak of that time. Uh, basically, the the Forty Nine ers franchise was birthed into existence miraculously around twenty eleven.
2: Yeah, uh, it was. So. It was funny that the two. I think it was a two thousand three uh, college football championship game actually happened on Monday Night Football the next year with the same two quarterbacks. Unfortunately, the play on the field wasn't that great.
0: Jesus. Uh so one hypothetical for you, because I think it's interesting when you're thinking about uh, about quarterbacks and, and and their performance. And I do think that the the Bears are set up to be good for a, a a good while because you have you're built the way that modern franchises I think should be built. You've got a defensive coordinator who is very very good at his job, big fan, Fangio. Niners fans are of course familiar with him and his scheme, and, and you've got. A, an offensive play caller who's going to bring offensive stability to the Bears and he's an innovative offensive coach who's not going to try and give you this like you got to run the ball in order to win the game like he actually understands that it's a passing league and you win via the pass but you and you're also of course on a rookie quarterback deal and that means that you can spend money on players like Khalil Mack and you can make those kinds of traits to go all in right now but I'm curious what you think the Bears would be if you were to switch say Nick Mullins and Mitchell Trubisky because when you look at their snap-by-snap snap grades, Mitch, Nick Mullins actually is outperforming uh, outperforming Mitchell Trubisky, both in pro football focus grades and at least in terms of raw stats over the, over the last few weeks. Nick Mullins hasn't had a grade uh, under, I would say, 75 the last two weeks. And his overall grade is really in the above average range. It's higher than Mitchell Trubisky. Mitchell Trubisky has had highs. He's had lows. But, you know, he is what he is, right? Now, I'm not saying the, to project them into the future because I think that Trubisky has more tools and he's more talented. There's a reason he went second overall. But this year, if you were to swap Nick Mullins and Mitchell Trubisky, would the Bears go farther in the playoffs, stay the same, or do
2: worse? But I, I think Trubisky has the tools to to, 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 to... To manage this offense better than Mullins would, would I and, and like I said trubisky is the right guy for this offense right now because I, I think so much of this is behind is is between the ears when it comes to you know bringing in a system understanding the system not to say I mean Mullins is is uh, is, is has a pretty good quarterback whisper himself and shanahan so I think that these two like you said are kind of comparable because they both have coaches that have systems that get the most out of their players now if you're going to ask me if I, if I would want Nick Mullins or Mitchell Trubisky, I, not 10 out of 10 times I'm going to take trubisky Just because, like you said, the physical tools uh, you're seeing the progression on there. Uh, You know he is he is a bit streaky, but if he can if he can catch fire like he like he can, then they can make a nice long run in the playoffs, and they have the they have the tools around to do so. Now you could also make the hypothetical that if you switch the tools, if you get (laughs) how (laughs) now we're just making a zombie
0: quarterback. All right, if you take Trubisky's legs. And you take more? No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
2: this let's 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 make a let's make a Frankenstein quarterback.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's the only thing I think that worries me about Trubisky is is his kind of inconsistent nature. Because uh, I, I much prefer pro football focus grade. I think it's a bit more accurate measure. But even if you look at more traditional stats and you look at his NFL passer rating, he's going to have a, you know a ridiculous kind of on paper stat game against Miami against the Jets both games over 100 quarterback rating, but then he drops games like the 73 quarterback rating against Arizona, 33 against the Rams, 61 against Minnesota, um, you know, and so basically if you if you have a good defense or anything approaching a good defense, then Trubisky falls apart, and if everything goes well, then it goes really, really well, um, and I think I'd love to see that smooth out. I, I think I'm with you. To me, Trubisky is still moldable clay, uh, and I do think that the NFL right now is it It makes it wants quarterbacks to be what they are too soon in their career and, and it forgets that you know you have players like Drew Brees and you have players that change and mold over the course of their career even Tom Brady early in his career wasn't the Tom Brady that won you know three four and five Super Bowls he evolved in his game as well Peyton Manning evolved in his game even in the way that he dropped back in stance his stance was a bit wider to have a stronger base like those are the things that a quarterback will do over the course of their career, uh, and I still think that Trubisky can do that. Uh, I just don't know that like right this second you, you know, with an upgraded quarterback. There
2: are the people that, are, that say that he is, he's, he's really good right now and that, they, that, they, that, he, that he, there is no room for improvement. There, obviously, there's room for improvement, but I think that if you stick Trubisky with Matt Nagy for the next six, seven, eight, nine years— you, there's, There has to be progression because those two, especially at the coaching position, he's going to get the most out of his quarterback, and you, you can bet that he's not going to stop until he gets Mitchell Drabisky to the level that he wants him to be at.
0: Now let's talk about the defense a little bit, because of course, the defense is the one that got away. And and when you look at the Bears defense right now, there are a lot of correlates with the 49ers in the Jim Harbaugh years, because you've got Khalil Mack. He's the edge rusher that Alden Smith once was. You've got Akeem Hicks, who's playing Justin Smith's spot. You've got Roquan Smith, who lines up like a little baby Patrick Willis, and even Kyle Fuller, who is a veteran cornerback who's having a bit of, not a resurgence, because last year, of course, he had one of his better years. But he is basically the the cornerback that Carlos Rogers was, who had his best year under uh, Vic Fangio when he was acquired as a free agent for the 49ers in 2011. And and the scheme looks really, really similar. You've got the split safety look, pattern matching across the board, and, and they have, of course, that super high turnover ratio. They've got like what? 26 interceptions and 35 turnovers total, something like that. Um, and the Niners had something like 38 in 2011. Uh, so what is it about this defense that that makes it go? And is there a weak spot that you've seen the Bears have over the course of the last few weeks.
2: Well, I think you know once you acquire Mac, you all of a sudden have a front four that can get pressure on its own, and when you can do that, then you can let your your inside linebackers Trevathan and Roquan Smith kind of have that free reign, and they both have good sideline to sideline speed, so that's why you see Roquan Smith, a rookie, who had another ten game, uh, ten tackle game uh, last week against the Packers. So you you kind of free up your linebackers, and you also you allow your you allow your secondary to press a little bit more because the quarterback has to get rid of the ball quicker. Now, that being said, I I, I think that the biggest attribute to this defense, and something that they haven't had for a while, is there really is no weakness. They have really good depth. They can switch guys out. Now, they're getting banged up a little bit with Daddy Jackson and Aaron Lynch getting hurt, and we don't know what the status is going to be for them moving forward, but if I, if I had to say something that actually works against the Bears' defense, and we saw it against the Miami game to an extent, was the quick passes. You neutralize that front four by getting rid of the ball quick, and we saw that happen with Albert Wilson in Miami, they would just throw those those bubble screens, and they would get they would get blockers out there, and all of a sudden uh, Khalil Mack was was basically out of the game. Now he was hurt, he was hurt in that game a little bit, but that that front that front four of that pressure coming up, it was non-existent. It it, it had no effect. So uh, I think if they are susceptible to something, it's getting rid of the ball quickly and getting them getting the ball out in space quickly because they're still World Cron Smith, although he is racking up the tackles he has made some mental errors in coverage and you know some of the coverage ha- has broken down at times when the ball gets out quick so uh, that that's something to, to keep in mind moving forward and Fanjo sometimes uh I guess you could say would be a little stubborn with the, with the game plan because we saw nothing change against Miami. They were playing the same thing. They were beating their head against the wall. And we couldn't understand why they were ripping off chunks of yardage all the time. So uh, it's just something that has been a little bit of a, of a bugaboo for the bears defense. And and, and that's nitpicking because they played phenomenal all year.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Eddie Jackson at the safety position, I I, I, do you think he's going to play this week? I don't think he's going to play. I mean, at this point they were thinking that it was going to be like a season ending injury. And it turns out that maybe it won't be. And he might be
2: back for the playoffs. Yeah, I, I don't foresee it because he was in a walking boot after the game. Uh, although the Bears are still in contention for a first-round buy, uh, they, they need the Rams to slip up against either the 49ers or the, or the Cardinals, and the Bears would have to win their last two games, which, I, I mean, is a possibility. But – if you're if you're asking me if I'm in charge of the Bears, I say you, you rest. Eddie Jackson needs to be full go come playoff time. Don't don't risk messing that up anymore. And and we've seen this before with with Matt Nagy resting players for an extra week. Trubisky uh, was out for two weeks. Probably could have played after the first week, but they gave him another week of rest. Same with Khalil Mack. Probably could have went gave him an, gave him an extra week off. So as aggressive as Nagy is in his play calling on the field, that's how conservative he is with player health. And we saw this in the preseason too, resting guys like there's some guys that hardly played a snap in the preseason because he wanted them to be fresh for week one and that that was a whole big thing in in chicago whether or not guys were getting enough reps before they hit the, the the first week so uh i i would imagine that eddie jackson would be uh this would be a rest week and i wouldn't be surprised if he if he didn't even play week 17 either
0: all right give me one key matchup that you'll be watching in this game that you think is is either a fun to watch or b might tilt the game one way or the other
2: Cool. Uh, honestly, be, uh, I, it has to be, and, and, and I mean, this is a cop out, but I mean, whoever is going to be lining up against against Khalil Mack because that I think that is the big is the biggest thing of how much pressure they can put on Mullins because Mullins has played well, and and I, and I what I want to see is what does he do against the pressure like this whenever it's collapsing on him with Akeem Hicks coming around the other side and then you have Eddie Goldman up the front and then Khalil Mack he's literally throwing guys around like rag dolls with one hand so I'm not sure exactly who uh, Mack will be going up against face to face this week, but. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he gets another back sack like he had against Rodgers it'll be interesting to see. which was
0: pretty hilarious that i mean that was awesome <laughs>
2: Phenomenal! The fact that the fact that the guy is sacking, it was a it was a back sack by Khalil Mack. So it, it, it everything works out. Even his last name that rhymes with sack is so perfect. He's my favorite Chicago Bear. I loved him when he was in Oakland, and now he's my favorite Chicago Bear. So uh, I, 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 it is a cop out because when when the Bears play and they're on defense, my I, I think me and I think you could say most everybody who else who watches the game, their eyes are locked on Khalil Mack because they want to see what he's going to do. He gets leveraged so well that he can push guys with one arm while coming around with a strip sack with the other arm he gets so low and he can contort his body so well and so fast that he literally can just stab a guy with his one arm and that's all it takes to make a 350 pound lineman and go flying in the air it's it's just something magical to watch sometimes and
0: yeah, you know, i think that so he's gonna line up generally speaking against joe staley uh but even if he lines up i think Yeah, it'll be a good matchup, I think. Uh, And I also think even a matchup against McGlinchey will be good because I think McGlinchey will get the test as a medal against someone who is uh, the best, I think, pass rusher in the NFL right now. Uh, so I, I think for me, it's going to really be George Kittle and, and whomever's going to be covering him. And I'm I'm curious to see how the pattern matching rules are going to be attacked by Kyle Shanahan because it, you do have uh, I think Amos is the strong safety, and so Amos is probably going to draw some of that coverage. I generally know that I know that they play split high safeties, and I'm, I'm curious to see whether or not they're going to rotate Amos down and, and have more of that cover three look, or if they're going to stay in their cover two or match quarter shell, because if they stay too high, then I could see Kittle getting bracketed with Amos and Trevathan. Um, I'm curious to see if they put Smith on Kittle uh, in coverage, because I think that's going to be an interesting matchup Two really young players that are going to be matched up that could see, uh, you know, some future matchups that would be interesting. So it it is going to be for me, those middle of the area defenders and whether or not they're going to be able to handle uh, Kittle because he is far and away the most dangerous offensive weapon the Niners have. Uh, and if they're going to go to the quick game, I think you might see a few more RPOs, uh, and if that's the case then those are going to be backside slants to either Pettis, um, or you're going to see some stuff to Kittle, um, and kind of we'll see what happens. I mean, the Niners could also just try to run it down your throat, because we do that too, but I don't think that's going to go well.
2: No, and, and it's funny you say that, it's not really funny, but I was going to say uh, that you could see Rokon's with on Kittle, because Fangio has such, uh, I, I guess, confidence in these backers to go into coverage. We've seen Khalil Mack drop into coverage sometimes, in questionable times sometimes, but uh, but uh, you, you, I I was going to say they may put Smith on Kittle, and if that does not work out, you might see a bracket with Jerbathon and Amos after that.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So, give me your prediction for the game. What do you think is going to happen?
2: Uh, I I said that this would be really easy for the Bears to, you know, take off. You know, they have a monumental win over Green Bay at home. You win the division first time in nearly a decade. And then all of a sudden you got to get on a plane, go to the West Coast, play the Niners, who are, you know, four and ten. And and it'd be easy to say, I don't need to put a whole week's worth of work in this. We'll just show up. We'll play. We'll beat them. Now, I think this will be a good mental test for the Bears to see how they actually handle success, something they haven't had to do for a long, long time. So I think Nagy's test this week is making sure his guys are ready to play. And for the most part, I think the Bears have the mentality that they're hungry. They're they're still an underdog as far as they're concerned. So they're going to go in there ready to play. Um uh, I think this this gets weirdly tight in the the first quarter, and maybe the maybe the Niners jump out to a three or six point lead in the first quarter. I think, but I can see in the middle of the game the Bears making some hay, making some hay towards the end of the first half, making some hay in the third quarter. Uh, I, on my podcast, I said they pull away late in the third. I can see this being twenty six thirteen Bears, uh, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point of this game it's it's oddly tight for some reason. So, uh, but I still say the Bears pull away and then they can come away with a thirteen point win.
0: Yeah, I was thinking 20, uh, 24-17 as well, where they, they end up covering the spread, but it's not as as far away as, as one would think. Yeah, it is, it, which I'm surprised by that. It, it, four points doesn't seem like a whole, whole, whole lot, uh, considering, I think, the talent deficiencies in this game. I mean, the, the especially given the Bears' defense, but I think that's probably more of an indictment on the Bears' offense than it is anything else, because the defense could easily shut the uh the 49ers down and and so I think that that's probably what it is I think it's just not a ton of confidence in the Bears offense
2: Vegas knows what they're doing most of the time so uh, we'll we'll, we'll see I
0: mean look they're welcoming the Raiders with open arms so my question is do they
2: yeah you're you're also true you're also it's also very true so we'll we'll, maybe maybe it's just a crapshoot maybe they just roll the dice and see what happens
0: that's literally, That would be very, very Vegas of them. Uh, well, John, it's a pleasure having you on. Where can they find your podcast if they want to hear more, especially in the lead up to the game? Because we had a much more spirited debate on your show uh, about the, uh, the trade and Mitchell Trubisky and whatnot. Uh, so where can they find your show? Where can they read your stuff? Uh, and where can they tune in?
2: yeah if, if you listen to that podcast this week you'll see how disinterested I am in talking about the Mitchell Trubisky trade I kind of just, let, I just let the dogs fight themselves and I just kind of watch because I am not interested in what happened two years ago but anyway uh, you, you can you can find me on Twitter at JD Buffon yes the middle D is for my uncle Doug my middle name is Douglas his name was Douglas it's a family name it's a family affair so at JD Buffon you can listen to the podcast at bearsbarroom.com dot com you can find us on iTunes Spotify anything any place where you can find podcasts you can probably find us on your palm pilot or on your Boombox or anything Uh, it's like a dreamcast you just just find us anywhere bears barroom radio network we got a whole slew of shows there uh it's a good time for bears fans and nfl fans because we got a lot of diverse shows on that network
0: absolutely well hey thanks again for coming on it's always a pleasure and uh hopefully it's a good game thank you so much for having me on it was a good time well, that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals Podcast. Thanks again to my guests, Brandon Schultz from the Seahawkers Podcast, David Lombardi from The Athletic, and John Buffone from Buffone 55 Thanks again for tuning in. You can always follow me at Better Rivals on Twitter. Uh, and just a quick note about Jared. Uh, you notice that Jared, my typical co-host, is not here on this show. He's actually had to bow out of the podcast. He had some family stuff go on. He's got some other work commitments. And so we are going to still keep the show trucking, uh, but we are indeed going to probably have a few more guests over the next couple of weeks uh, before we get into full off season mode. So podcast is not going anywhere. We are still here. We will still put out the the great content that you're used to, including the off season series, going back to the roster evaluation model, heading into free agency uh, and all of the stuff that you're used to getting from the better rivals podcast in the off season. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, Go Niners.
3: Also, listen to podcasts, check it out.